Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. From the halls of assembly, you'll hear us scream and shout. Our love of Indiana is manic and devout. Archie and his boys, we discuss in unique manner. We won't be satisfied until we hang another banner. Us two goofy guys go by names of Ward and Eric. And guys you probably know by now are Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Hoosier Hysterics podcast. We have a very different and special podcast for you today. It is different mostly because... It is just me on this one. Ward has taken off to Mexico with his family. Now, I can't say for certain that Ward didn't plan this trip exactly at the time of the Keon Brooks announcement and Indiana in the Big Ten tournament and Selection Sunday, all coming up within about a 72-hour time period. If Ward did do that intentionally, God bless him. He is smarter than I ever gave him credit for because I can't think of a better time to be out of the country than right now as an Indiana University basketball fan. Of course, we are partnered with Peegs. We are powered by, powered by Peegs. The partnership is going great. Make sure that uh, for all of you Indiana University basketball fans out there, please stop what you're doing right now. Go to Peegs.com, P-E-E-G-S.com. Subscribe. It is the best money that you will ever spend in your life. It will give you endless enjoyment, also endless frustration when it comes to certain commitment announcements from high school students in Fort Wayne, Indiana. But the good far outweighs the bad. Peegs is the gold standard in Indiana news. That's where you want to be. So please go to pigs.com. All of our podcasts are distributed through Pigs and appear on the Pigs podcast channels. And anything you could ever want to know about Indiana basketball, you will find on pigs.com. So that's why it's different because it's just me, but it's special and different because for the first time on the Hoosier Hysterics podcast, we will be talking to someone today who is neither a former player nor a future player. This is not somebody connected directly with the Indiana University basketball program. This is, by all intents and purposes, an outsider. That said, it's an outsider that Indiana fans and people who care about college basketball, and specifically college basketball recruiting, you know his name, and if you don't know his name, you definitely want to get to know this guy. He is just one of the absolute best that covers college basketball recruiting. He also just has a great insight to the game of basketball. His coverage goes well beyond just covering recruits and where they're going and where they might go and where they won't go. He really is able to dissect the game of basketball in a really interesting way and has been really helpful to anybody who's on pigs.com. He participates in the message boards. He writes weekly articles about the state of the program. He gives updates on the recruits. This guy is someone you all need to get to know, and I'm sure most of you, the vast majority, already know him. I've come up with a few nicknames for him. I'm going to try him out right now. We have today, joining us on the Hoosier Hysterics podcast, the rabbi of recruiting, the prince of prospects, 
the king of commitments. Please welcome national recruiting analysts for 24-7 sports, Brian Snow. I mean, I don't know if I can live up to any of those monikers, but it is an honor to be on this podcast. Brian, how are you, man? I'm alive. I'm alive. <laughs> so that that's good. So let's You know, I survived Fort Wayne, which yeah. that's always a win. Well, look, we're going to get into Fort Wayne. Let let's be clear. This is a, a an odd podcast for us because we typically aren't like day and date and topical, but because of what happened in Fort Wayne with the decision of a certain recruit last night, we wanted to get Brian on the phone. We thought it would be great to talk to Brian about not just that, but recruiting in general and and how Brian got to where he is. So before we get to recruiting last night, Brian, tell us, where are you right now? Are you in Indianapolis? I'm sitting on my couch in Indianapolis. I woke up this morning, drove from Fort Wayne to Indy, and now I'm here podcasting with you. Very nice. All right, we're going to go way back. Before we get to any recruiting, before we get to anything that happened last night, before we get to any Hoosier hysteria that exists amongst the IU faithful, where did Brian Snow start his life? Uh, technically, I was born in New Jersey. Don't remember it. Moved to Cincinnati when I was one year old. Then, uh, you know, went to Ohio State. Graduated, barely. And, you know, one thing led to another. Started writing, and writing has turned into writing and scouting, and which has now turned into whatever it is that you guys saw last night. All right, well, let's, let's slow, di- slow it down a little bit. You grew up in Cincinnati. Were you an Ohio State fan growing up? Uh, not particularly. Um... Cincinnati's kind of an interesting place. You you have Xavier and Cincinnati get the vast, vast majority of the uh, basketball attention with Kentucky kind of being third. And then Ohio State's kind of like, oh, they're kind of a school, you know, that plays basketball. There's a lot of alums there, but the media coverage is non-existent of Ohio State basketball. Uh, so you wouldn't really – not many kids – in Cincinnati, grow up Ohio State basketball fans. Now, Ohio State football is a whole different animal. I definitely grew up watching Ohio State football. Uh, but Ohio State basketball, it's kind of this non-existent force in the city of Cincinnati. Now, where did you fall in love? I assume you fell in love with the game of basketball at some point in your childhood. And growing up in Ohio, that is not often the case because most gravitate towards football. Where, where did your love affair with the game of basketball begin? Honestly, it's just I love sports, just sports in general. Uh, basketball, football, baseball, I'm, you know, ob- obsessed with all of them. You know, I got my Reds, my Bengals, and then bat this, just the sport of basketball. Um, so th- that's that. But, you know, I, I can't point to one moment or, you know, one, you know, type of situation. It's kind of always just been sports in general have always grabbed my attention, and I've always been – very obsessed with it, with sports for as long as I can remember. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, your fandom because you, with the exception of Ohio State football, which obviously you've been blessed to be a Buckeye fan for the majority of your life, you were also cursed to be a Bengals fan and a Reds fan. So first of all, rank for me between Ohio State football Bengals football and Reds baseball. What would who would you most like to see a championship for? Oh, that's not even close. It's the Bengals. Really? Yeah, not not, not even, even close. Not even a decision. Wow. And do you, uh, did you go to Bengals games growing up? Yeah, you know we had season tickets early on. Then we stopped getting them, and then uh, until the Bengals re-signed Bobby Hart, my brother and I, former Indiana graduate, 
or I guess he's technically yeah, still an so, Indiana graduate, right. but whatever. Uh, we've had season tickets, I think, the last like five or six years. Uh, I just wrote their season ticket people a not-so-friendly email. So <laughs> I might re-up them later on, but I certainly didn't re- recently. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I've been going to Bengals games virtually my whole life. You know, some of my friends, their parents always had extra tickets, so I'd always end up going even when we didn't have season tickets. Now, did you consider any other colleges besides Ohio State, or did you know it's Ohio State for me from the beginning? Uh, let's see here. I only applied to Ohio State, Indiana, Kent State, and Ohio U. Mm. To this day, I don't know if I got into Indiana or not because I never opened the letter. <laughs> uh, I wasn't going to go to school out of state. I wasn't going to go to the same school my brother went to. Got Kent State, I know I got in. I didn't really want to go there. I didn't think I'd get into Ohio State, but when I got in there, I knew that was where I was going to go. Kind of a homebody, so wanted to be close to home. But there was only one rule regarding college in my house, and that was you're not allowed to go to Xavier and you're not not allowed to go to Cincinnati because we need you the hell out of the city. Um, (laughs) Was that so? That that was not. That was going to be close to home, but I wasn't going to be too close. So Ohio State was kind of exactly what I was looking for at that point in time in my life. And getting you out of the city was not your parents saying that for your well-being. It was for their well-being. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was like you're the youngest. Like we just need you the hell away from us. (laughs) Leave. Well. How much older is your brother than you? Uh, f- about five years. Did you go to any uh, India? Did you visit Indiana when he was there at all? Uh, I was up there a couple times, not too often, but I was up there a couple times. Um, believe it or not, the only time I went to an Indiana basketball game with him, I don't think he was a student anymore, but was when I actually got the tickets through connections I had once I started working. But uh, but I did I did visit him a couple times at Indiana. So you, was it a was it a memorable game you went to? Do you remember? No. <laughs> Who was the coach back then? It was Kelvin. You know what they played? Oh, Ball State. Boy. I want to say. Yeah. It was they played Ball State. I want to say it was Kelvin's first year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and they won. I want to say like 10, 12, 15, something like that. But it, it was a very non memorable game. Uh, that first year, we, we don't like talking about Kelvin on this, uh, on this podcast. Ward refers to him as the arsonist for burning down the program. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but I was living in Los Angeles at the time of that first year, just to share a quick story that on another podcast I'll get into details with. But uh, I was very excited because it seemed like he had turned things around pretty quickly. He took over a team that, that actually didn't do too badly in the Big Ten the year before. And got us to the NCAA tournament. We win a game in the NCAA tournament. And then we were playing UCLA, who I believe was the number one or two seed that year. And we were playing them in San Jose, which is a, a short, or I'm sorry, Sacramento, which is just a short flight from LA. So I convinced a friend to fly up with me. We lose to UCLA in one of the worst offensive games I have ever seen in person, for sure. I mean, the score at halftime, if I'm not mistaken, was UCLA 20, Indiana 11. That was the score at halftime. And uh, anyway, I don't want to get too far into it. Let's just say that that night ended with me paying what had to have been a meth head with a street illegal car to drive me fast to get to the airport to get the hell out of Sacramento that night. 
I'll go into details later, but that's just uh, that's my my. That sounds like a far more interesting story than whatever you could ask me about. Well, it is an interesting story that almost resulted in death, but we'll get into that later because we've got the rabbi of recruiting on the line, so we want to keep going with that. All right, so you you make the bad choice and go to Ohio State, and yes, I said it was the bad choice. You go to Ohio State. Are you studying journalism? Uh, mass communications. Got it. And they do- technically don't have a journalism school there, but. Uh- you know, did mass communications, which is virtually the same damn thing. Yeah, they can't have a journalism school at Ohio State because they don't know how to write. Okay, let's just move on. So we <laughs> feel free to fight back on any of these digs that I'm going to give it. You're all. No, I'm going to let you roll. Okay. I'm letting you roll with it. I mean, look, you beat us in the Big Ten tournament, so I, I just need something. I need something to get through this. So. You did you know at that time? I mean, you're a kid in college. If you're like most kids, freshman, sophomore year, you were not even thinking about a career. Or were you? Did you know you wanted to go into sports as a career? Um, I knew I would have liked to, but you know, I was also realistic. I didn't know how possible it was. It really was kind of interesting. I w- I always followed recruiting, even in high school. Like one of my best friends, his name is Mike Matthews. He played tight end at Georgia Tech, and uh, he was pretty heavily recruited coming out of high school. And, you know, we would always follow all the recruiting stuff. And I remember one time Tom Lemming listed him as like one of the top 25 tight ends in the country. So that was like a huge deal. And I I was always real interested in what's next, you know, Mm -hmm. whether it's the minor leagues in baseball or, you know, the NFL draft. I've always been kind of interested in what's next for for programs and for teams I follow. So recruiting was always a big deal to me. How deep did you get into Major League Baseball uh, minor league stuff? Because that is a rabbit hole that you can go really deep in. At, when I was in college, not super deep. But now, oh, I like when it comes to Reds prospects, I'm on it. Well, the tr- I'm on it. And the truth is, for most baseball—I'm a St. Louis Cardinals fan. I grew up in St. Louis. So for I the most—yes, of course you do. But we'll take that. That's a good thing. For the most part, we've had good Major League teams. But— the last several years have there's been a downturn and it seems like all you have as a major league baseball fan when you know you have a team that cannot compete for division titles all you have is the minor leagues and it is fun it is the yeah. prospects it is what guy are you getting in the 23rd round yeah like one of the things i do bef- during baseball is before i go to bed is i check my minor league box scores like religiously every night yes I know the feeling. I do it too with the Cardinals. I don't really go down to single A. I stop at double A. You go all the way down to single A? No, I get, I get down to rookie ball. I don't do oh, like the Dominican boy. leagues. Okay. But rookie ball, A ball, double A, triple A, yeah, I'm, I'm checking every night. It's funny when you do that because no doubt you find a player and you're like, this guy's a future MVP of the league. I mean, look at him. He's batting 380. <laughs> this guy is going to be an MVP and he's going to be in the Reds and he'll be invited to spring and he's going to make the roster. You like tell yourself stories, right? that he never gets out of the Pioneer League. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, there's a player for the Cardinals that my friend who's very deep into Cardinals minor league baseball has been telling me about for years. This is several years ago. Tommy Pham, who became my favorite player of all time for the St. Louis Cardinals. I loved everything about him in the minor leagues. He finally gets a crack. He finally does well. And then they trade him. And it is heartbreaking. Heartbreaking to lose a prospect. You're just crushed. Yeah, you're just crushed. totally. So what's the prospects for the Reds this year? Prospects for the team? Yeah, or for the for, team. Sorry, I used the uh, I, I co-opted the you word. You threw me off there. You, you know I've got an Ohio State education. I need things spelled <laughs> out to me far easier. <laughs> um, How's the I would team say looking? they're probably looking at about a 500 record. They're improved from last year, but how improved? 
time will tell. But I, I it, there's some reason for optimism, which there hasn't been in a while. That's so good. there's that. Who is their ace? Uh, Luis Castillo coming back probably. And then, you know, they traded for three solid starters. Sonny Gray being the one who got the most attention. Right. But I would say Luis Castillo is the one people are going to point to and say, like, that's the guy. That Sonny Gray trade, not to get this is not a baseball podcast, so I don't want to get lost, but that Sonny Gray trade was a weird one. I thought they gave up a lot for Sonny Gray. Yeah, they gave up like three times as much for Sonny Gray as they gave up for Tanner Roark, and they're the same level of pitcher. So I can't figure out exactly did they screw up giving up too much for one or did they get a complete thievery in the other? But well, nonetheless, you'll have 162 games to figure it out. All right, so you go to Ohio State, you major in mass communications, you graduate. Uh, which which is not hard because Ohio State gives graduation degrees to anybody who walks through the doors. And then, what is your first job? <laughs> so, I actually, I want to say my junior year in college, I emailed uh, rivals and just kind of said, you know, I'd be interested in helping out. And they kind of, ha- they had me cover uh, Xavier. And I covered Xavier, and obviously that's only basketball. So I then covered Xavier in Ohio State. And then by the time I left college, I was full-time covering Xavier and Ohio State, and then it became Xavier, Ohio State, and doing regional stuff, and then me and Rivals parted ways on not-so-fantastic terms, and I got hired at Scout uh, to be a national basketball analyst, and that, you know, I've, I've never had a, like an office job in my life. What, what year are we talking here? What year did you graduate? Uh, dis- like January of 07. I, okay. I kind of I did a little vic, not a vi- full victory lap at Ohio State, more of like a victory in a hundred meter sprint. <laughs> and clearly, I don't sprint very often. Uh, so you know, I went four and four years and one quarter at Ohio State. And your Ohio State years uh, refresh my memory. It's Thad Mata is the head coach of the basketball team, right? Um, it started with O'Brien. Okay, Thad Mata was hired after my sophomore year, I believe. And O'Brien got himself into all kinds of trouble, right? That was that was a big scandal. Yeah, I mean, what actually happened was kind of ridiculous, but he got in trouble for paying a player that was ineligible and was never going to play, but <laughs> hadn't been determined ineligible yet or something like. It was it was it's an odd deal. And wasn't it a foreign-born player? Wasn't it a European? Yeah, it player? was like yeah. the kid like needed like a hundred dollars to like get his visa or something and. It just was like he was never going to play basketball at Ohio State, and O'Brien knew it. So he was just kind of helping the kid out, like his mom was sick or, or some crazy, and the and he got got for that. And then was Trestle the head coach of the football team? Yeah, Trestle got hired when I was a senior in high school. Got it, got it. So you're covering Ohio State. You're and when you're co- you're doing it all for the online platforms. You're not writing for yes. any print. You are you are a child of technology. You're writing for rivals. You part ways with rivals. Had you started your inroads into when you said covering Ohio State and Xavier basketball? Are you getting into recruiting at this point because it's your passion? Oh yeah, I've, I've you know like Xavier, I covered the team as well, but my focus was always recruiting, even when it was just Xavier and Ohio State. Ohio State had covered football and basketball recruiting. Never did any team stuff for Ohio State, but uh, just did recruiting coverage, and then I covered the Xavier team as well. So help us out here because I look, I'm a Pigs, you know, loyalist and have been following Pigs for over a decade. 
I love recruiting as well. It's really exciting. It's what keeps me going in the off season, and truthfully, what keeps me going even during the regular season for most Indiana seasons recently. It's it's fun. It's all you you hit it on the head. Talking about what's next is always exciting because it's the promise of tomorrow, which you know is all cupcakes and sunshine. Um, but there. In, in following recruiting the way that I follow it, which is just as a consumer, it's clear there are, there are people who simply write about recruiting, and it seems like they're just people that are writing about what other people are actually investigating and covering. And then there's people like you that have real deep connections. You're talking directly to prospects. You're talking directly to prospects' families. Can you walk us through... In your early days of covering, how do you make those connections so that you're not just talking about what you're hearing, but you're actually in communication with these families and these prospects and the coaches? How does that happen? It's kind of interesting. Now I'm 35 years old, so the way I cover it is very different than when I did when I was 21, 22. When you know, when I'm 21, 22, you know, I I was lucky enough that I was able to like you know had some money, could go on some you know trips. And, you know, watch, watch a lot of AAU teams in the area very often. When I was in Columbus, all Ohio Red, they would always run tournaments in Columbus. So I was always, my face was in front of people. And I would just build connections, mostly with at that time with kids. I talked to kids a lot because, again, I'm 21, 22 years old. I'm more comfortable talking to a 17, 18-year-old than I am the 40-year-old AAU coach or the 40-year-old high school coach or the parents or whatever. Uh, now that's totally changed. I hardly ever talk to kids. Um, I don't like talking to them. Quite honestly, they don't like talking to me. No, wait, let's, uh, let's stop there. What, why is that? I would imagine that, I mean, you have a name, I don't want to jump too far ahead here, but you have a name in the recruiting world that is second to none. I would imagine a 18, 17, 18, 16 year old kid sees you or is told, Hey, that's Brian Snow. They would be dying for coverage. They'd be dying to talk to you. What, why is it that you think they don't want to talk to you? What are we going to talk about? I'm 35 years old. Like, <laughs> well, yeah, like, I don't they expect think, you... like when you turn, like they think the water in your house gets hot simply because you turn the lever. <laughs> like, you know, like my hot water heater blew. Like, damn, I got to pay two thousand dollars. Like, their parents get that. Right. The kids, like, wait a minute, what? You, it just doesn't get hot because you you turn the you turn left on the on the you know faucet. Yeah. Like, no, like just get away from me. But they, um, they don't want your attention because I, I think about kids these days. Some do, but yeah. there, there's so much of it. Like, I'm not the only human being who does this. And like some of these kids, like they're, they're so – heck, they've been covered by, you know, whether it's Clark Francis or whoever since they're in fifth, sixth grade. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the times it's, it's the same kids are the best. Now, it might not be in order and some kids fall off. Some kids get better. Don't get it twisted, but – you know, I, I was talking to an AAU coach, and he was talking about, oh, fifth grade nationals. You know, we played P.J. Washington. We we won the national title. You know, it was Cody Riley. who's at UCLA now. Like, the top kids tend to remain virtually the same. Okay. Not, you know, not all of them, but, you know, for a good percentage. So these kids have been getting media coverage for so long that it just doesn't mean that much to them anymore. Got it. And of course they want coverage and they want attention. A lot of kids love attention than claim that they don't, which is really weird. Right. Uh, but whatever. Um, it's just kind of, it's not that fun to do an interview. And quite honestly, if I'm interviewing them, like we're talking about recruiting, which is probably something 
they're just tired of to begin with, whether it's dealing with coaches, dealing with media, let alone actually talking about it. And then you have some coach who's going to parse every word they say and make it into World War III and wonder why they listed Michigan first instead of Michigan State or Indiana first instead of Purdue. So what, what you said Indiana before you said Purdue, what does that mean? Or you said Michigan before you mis- said Michigan State, what does that mean? And it mean, and like for the kid, it means nothing, but for the coach who's reading into it, it means something. So I don't think they necessarily love it. You know, some kids like they enjoy the process more than others. Uh, but for the most part, they get, they've had so much coverage. It's like talking to me, it's like, all right, cool. Do you know, whatever. Right. All right, so let's go. So you start building. Um, you're covering Xavier. You're covering Ohio State. You start building relationships. You're covering recruiting. You 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 like it, so you're focused on it. You're talking to kids back then, but you also start building relationships with parents. I also assume you're building relationships with coaches. I mean, you're out there yeah. watching games at these tournaments and these AAU showcases, and assistant coaches and head coaches just litter the sidelines and bleachers of those things. So how does that start with you? And can you kind of walk us through who were some of the coaches that you became friendly with, really friendly with, starting your career? I mean, you know, I, I would always say Sean Miller was really good to me. Uh, you know, he was the head coach at Xavier. He, he was always really good to me. Chris Mack as well. Uh, those two guys. And then, you know, Brian Gregory at Dayton was good to me. Mick Cronin at Cincinnati. I, I've known Travis Steele forever. You know, th- there's a lot of guys in the air, especially in the area, you know, the Ohio, Indiana, Michigan type area that I've gotten to know and that, you know, were good to me when I was younger and, and, and whatever. It's funny. I always kind of say like, I, my job's so much easier now because the same calls and the same amount of calls and the same amount of work that would take six hours when I first started now takes like 20 minutes. Just because now I can call an AAU coach that I've known since I was 23 years old and I'll be like, Hey, you know, Jalen won't answer the phone. Get him to pick up his damn phone. Uh, like, for instance, Jalen Brown, we had him ranked number one in the country for a little while. And uh, Jalen was always pretty media friendly, but at the end, he got a little difficult to get a hold of. And I called it one of his coaches. I said, Des, tell Jalen to answer his blankety blank phone, or else we're going to have a problem. <laughs> Well, now, and but guess who called me back two minutes later? Now, when you say okay. oh, we're going to have a problem, what, what I mean, like, what is the what is no, the threat? No, he's not actually going to have a problem, right? It's just you know, you just say that, get the point across, and Des knows what I mean. You know, I've known him for ten years, so he's right. like, all right, Jalen's just being a pain in the butt for no reason. Des texts me, goes, Jalen doing media is part of being a top player. Call Snowback now, and guess what? He did in two minutes. That's I great. couldn't have done that a decade ago. Right. And that's all because of the relationships the relationships yeah. you've built. So he here I'm curious about and I don't know how much you'll give us here, but I am curious the world of high-end division 1 college basketball recruiting from the outside looking in is thought to be the dirtiest world that exists. Like shy of the mafia. It is like just written about by most people who don't know, I assume, how filthy and dirty it is. How dirty is it? I mean, it's dirty. It's certainly no dirty. I mean, football's way worse. It is. Way worse. I mean, you get in football, you've got the most obvious bidding wars in the history of the world going on. Um, I won't say the kid's name because it'd be accusing two programs, but it would. And I don't have direct evidence that this happened, but about 
seven, eight years ago, a kid announced on ESPN. He announced for one SEC school. And then he didn't end up going there. And it turned into like a one-week bidding war between two schools. Wow. And it was just kind of like, hey, you know, they went to this. You think you're getting a discount because of this? No. And the what, kid was, you know, top five, top ten kid, whatever he was at the time. What's I the, mean, it, what's it, the it, number? What's the number that they're – what is the final bid getting? You hear some just insane numbers. Give me one. Give me the highest number you've heard. The highest you number buy. I've ever heard for a basketball kid is five hundred thousand. And now, now what? Now I don't, and I can't confirm in any way that's true, right? But like, that's the highest number I've ever heard. All right, but, and it wasn't for a kid who was a top five player either. So here's my question for you: There's plenty of things in life that we can't prove, but we know they're true. Do you yes. think that's true, even though you can't prove it? I think there's truth to it. Got it. And when you talk about that that money, those bidding wars, and let's go back to just talking about basketball, that's coming from boosters? The, how, how much are the coaches involved, or is it just willful ignorance? Like, how does that system work? Um, some coaches, some there are, there are a couple coaches that they do it out of their own pocket. Uh, I've been told stories of one very veteran head coach he takes whatever whatever the maximum amount of money is from his ATM. Let's say it's $500. He takes out $500 from the ATM every single day. And you can do the math on how much money that is. But let's say he needs to pay a kid $15,000, $20,000. He has it in cash on him. And since the transaction of taking that cash out every single day is consistent, there's no way for anybody to track it. Wow. And is that a coach that is a winning Division One basketball coach? Yes. Man. Um, you know, some coaches, what they do, this is something you hear in the South quite often. So let's say it's going to cost you $50,000 to get a kid. Let's just pick $50,000. How the coach gets the money, I don't necessarily know. But what he'll then do is donate it to a church. Donate, let's say... You agreed on the price of $50,000 for the kid. You donate $70,000 to his church. So the church does what they want with it, and it's completely clean. Uh -huh. They give $50,000 to the kid and keep twenty dollars for themselves. Which is still a but win for the church. But because it's gone into a nonprofit, yeah. it's totally clean coming out. Uh, and the church can do whatever they want with their money, and who's going to investigate them? Yeah. Um, all right, so that's disgusting, but also not surprising. Uh so your career starting, you said 2007 is when you graduated Ohio State? Yeah, I started while I was still in school, though, but yeah. All right, so I'm going to turn it a little bit towards Indiana here, because obviously with your Midwest ties, you are as into Indiana recruiting and Indiana behind-the-scenes stuff as anyone. So your career starts right around the same time as Kelvin Sampson fiasco's going on and Tom Crean comes to town. Yes. Your... You, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm trying to paint a picture here because to call you just a recruiting analyst is doing you a disservice. You write, and I would say eloquently, which is shocking because of your alma mater, but you write eloquently <laughs> breaking down uh, real basketball strategy. I mean, you wrote several pieces about the pack line defense that were as good of an education on what the pack line defense is, and it really helped, I think, a lot of Indiana fans when Archie came to town. But you have more of a global 
perspective on basketball than just who who are the good high school kids coming out. Was that something that you studied? Was it just because you love basketball and you picked it up along the way? How did you become just more well-rounded as a, as a writer? Um, you know, the first thing is just watched a lot of basketball, played enough, not at a high enough level that I really knew what the hell I was doing because I stink. But, you know, watched enough where you pick up on things. Then I, you know, not everyone in my job feels this way, but I think it's really important to really understand the game because you have to understand why kids set up are set up for success and failure and what all comes with it. Like study the trends of the game, how, how everyone's being used. You really need to be able to have a functional basketball conversation with a coach. Uh, And when I say a coach, it could be a college coach. It could be an AAU coach. It could be a high school coach about why this kid produces or doesn't produce, like what makes sense and what doesn't. Um, So I, I think it's really important. And it's something I've consciously studied. I, I've watched film with coaches, multiple coaches. We've gone, you know, heck, I've had, you know, coaches come to my house or go to their house and watch games with them and kind of talk to them about what they're seeing. One thing I did when I was covering Xavier, I I loved doing it, um, Selection Sunday. You know, I don't know if they made the tournament every year I covered the team. I I honestly can't remember. Um, But Selection Sunday is really a unique thing. Yeah, the by, team by the makes, way, Brian, not to interrupt you, but just for Indiana fans, could you tell us what Selection Sunday is? I'm not sure we know what that is anymore. Is <laughs> it's that, this weird thing. They yeah. announce the NCAA tournament bracket and like teams that come up, like names of schools. It's a unique deal. Wow. I didn't know there was an NCAA tournament. I, I thought yeah. that ended and the NIT was the high watermark. <laughs> That's not the case. In 1958, huh? that was true. Right. Exactly. Okay. Well, guess what? We're still in 1958 then. Okay. So I'm sorry. So yeah, you selection Sunday. What I would do is it's really unique because the team obviously has zero for the first time all season. There's zero scouting report on who they're playing because they don't know who they they have absolutely Mm -hmm. no idea who they're going to play. So selection Sunday happens. What, what in modern college basketball, what everyone has is they have their video guys stay back in the office. And the moment that it pops up, that video guys goes to synergy or whatever film service they use and just, starts breaking down, getting games ready for a coach to watch. And what I used to do is whoever Xavier's first opponent is, I remember one year was Portland State. You can imagine I knew nothing about Portland State. (laughs) Portland State doesn't know much about Portland State. Yeah. So what I did is I watched, um, like, I think it was two game films with Sean Miller and Chris Mack of Portland State. So I got to see how they watched the game and saw how they would break it down and just some of the things they see as a coach versus I would never see just watching on my own. And I thought that was really beneficial for me. And I got to understand a lot more about the game, doing things like that. And I I just think it's important if you're in this job to have a deep understanding of basketball, not just from a cursory entertainment perspective, but from a, how the game functions from a coach perspective. Well, it's fascinating to read, I can tell you. I, I love your your insight and your take on it. I, I have to ask, before we get back to the timeline and, and bring it to Indiana, clearly you've brought up Sean Miller a couple times. He's somebody you, I assume, are still close to because you, you kind I of mean, formed a relationship. That, that's you know? the thing. Is like, I, couldn't, I, on, I don't have Sean Miller's cell phone number. Like I did at one point. I don't currently have it. The last, I could probably, if I looked at a calendar, tell you the last day I talked to him, it was like a Thursday in the middle of July. Um, well, that, that conversation, a, that conversation might've been recorded just so you know. Yeah. 
Uh, we have a functional professional relationship. It really doesn't extend beyond that. All right. I, I want to ask you your opinion without giving away too much, and I'm not asking you to divulge anything, but in the hubbub that has happened because of what's surrounding Arizona basketball and the wiretaps, and supposedly he was caught on the wire saying X, Y, and Z, have you heard anything in that story that surprises you, or did you hear the story and go, yeah, that, okay, moving the on? De- the detail, certainly, like, for Sean, like, for any head coach, really, to, like, have a discussion of paying a recruit $100,000 with someone who's not associated with that recruit, like, I can't fathom that because these guys, when they are doing quote-unquote business, they're only talking business with people who need to know the business. Got it. You wouldn't talk about it with someone who doesn't need to know the business of what's going on. So that was kind of, that didn't make sense to me. But if you want to tell, and this goes for any coach, this isn't Sean Miller, this isn't Will Wade, this is literally any coach. If you tell me a coach is caught on a wiretap trying to, you know, talking about paying some, talking about, a, you know, what has to be done to get a recruit, be it money or otherwise. No, that's not going to surprise me. Got it. Okay. So your career is, is starting to take off uh, you, you around the time that Samson goes away and Crean comes in. Did you know Tom Crean before he took the Indiana job? No, didn't never had one conversation with him in my life. Did you have any opinion on him from what you had heard, seen, covered when he got the job? I knew he wasn't a very popular guy in coaching circles, but out, but that that's kind of an interesting thing because typically you're well liked when you're losing, <laughs> right? Typically you're not well liked if you win. But uh, I knew Tom wasn't necessarily the most well liked individual, but that doesn't necessarily mean much to me just because typically that means like he either works hard or you're winning or, or whatever it may be. Then I would imagine when he gets the job, and and he did seem from the outside in like a tireless recruiter, a guy who who recruited hard. He'd seem like he did everything hard. Um, I imagine you your paths start to cross a little bit at these events, AAU events specifically. Did you? Yeah. Um, what was your take on I, him? What definitely you, when I moved to Indiana, I couldn't even tell you what year that was, but it was it was at, certainly after he got hired, maybe a year or two after he got hired. Um, I moved to Indiana and we started seeing each other, certainly started seeing each other more then. But yeah, um, just given that I was kind of the main guy in the Midwest and he's obviously recruiting high level Indiana kids, our paths definitely did start to cross once he got the Indiana job. And what was your initial opinion of him when you met him? I would say this were very different personalities and that was obvious from minute one, but I would say I respected his hustle. And I don't mean hustle in like a bad way. I mean, that man hustled. Like yeah, his works. ethic, his work ethic. Yeah. Like you, you, people can say what they want about Tom Crean. And to be honest, you know, I'm not going to argue with a lot of it, but like, that's one of the hardest working dudes I've ever seen in my life. Wow. How real was it that Indiana high school and AAU coaches didn't like him? It was real. Um, did that start off real. the case or it was because they got to know him? It did not start off that way. Okay. Um, part of it is a function of, and this, and like this ended up happening with Thad Mata too. When you recruit so many kids from the same area, dealing with the same people, inevitably some kids are going to have bad experiences. It, it's just, it's just the math and human nature, especially in basketball recruiting tends to be that those people are going to remember their kids who had bad experiences a lot more than they remember their kids who had good ones. Mm-hmm. 
Like you look at Ohio State, like Jared Sullinger obviously had a really good experience at Ohio State. But his high school teammate, J.D. Weatherspoon, had a terrible one. Mm-hmm. What do people in Columbus talk about more? The fact that Jared had a great experience or that J.D. had a terrible one? J.D. Yeah, exactly. And I think Tom ran into some of that. Now, again, at times I don't think Tom did himself any favors. Part of what it is is around here, I think you have to be able to throttle down. And I don't know that he necessarily ever had that ability to throttle down and he just could kind of wear people out. Sure. And that that might play better in a New York or a Chicago or that type of thing where those guys, they love the intensity. And like, whereas here it's like, you know, like, chill, man. Like, just relax. Right. Like, the kid will make his decision when he makes it, but you just need to relax. And he could never quite throttle down. And I think people just kind of grew tired of it in the state, especially, you know, the higher level high school and AAU coaches who dealt with him more and on a more consistent basis. It also seemed like, again, from the outside in, that he had a level of insecurity about him that he tried to make up for with this kind of manic energy and intensity that just seemed off-putting. I mean, even just as a fan, it seemed off-putting. I can't imagine what it would be like if I was a recruit or a recruit's family on the other end of that insecurity. I don't know if insecurity is the word I'm going to use. Okay. I would say he was always acutely aware of everything that everyone said about him. And I don't know how he had time to figure all that out, but he always knew what was written about Indiana, what was said about him, uh, knew everything, read everything. And I think that kind of played in his own mind a little bit because when you're in this market where it's covered the way it is, you know, be it, you know, Rab Johns and Peegs and, and, you know, the newspaper, you got multiple newspapers, multiple newspapers from all over the state. You have, you know, other recruiting, you got, you know, inside the hall, you got whatever. It's so heavily covered and day-to-day coverage that there's going to be so much out there that I think it can almost play mind games on you if you're someone who can't just shut it off. And Tom never shut it off. And I don't know, maybe that's an insecurity. Maybe it's maybe it's just how he's wired to like want to know everything. But he would always know what was written and what was said. And I think that got into his own head a little bit. Well, he was also a guy who clearly just wore his emotions on his sleeve. I mean, I can you you cannot count yeah, the number of times I, he almost I would say like you you get some of that like People complain about him doing that, but then they, oh, Bob Knight, you know, he wore his emotions on his sleeve. He told Steve Alford he was an asshole in a press conference. We need Archie Miller to do that. Yeah, I agree with that part of the hypocrisy, but I'm saying I've never seen another coach cry as many times in a press conference as I did Tom Crean. I mean, he, yeah, that was, he cried a lot. Yeah, that, and again, like when I say we're totally different personalities, like that's part of it. That would be part of it. You're not going to cry during this uh, interview. No, uh, I mean, not yet. Maybe when it's done, because I'll be so sad that it's over. Yeah, or cry but, because your career is at the point where you were willing to do this interview. Yeah, basically, <laughs> you know, it's like, how do you know you failed at life? You're on the Hoosier Hysterics podcast. podcast. <laughs> um, I got to ask you a insider thing about something that's been online since it happened, and I have no clue if there's any truth to it. I don't even know what the story is. But Tom Crean was recruiting Kyrie Irving pretty hard for a while. And then he wasn't recruiting him pretty hard. 
And there was an in-home visit, apparently, with Tom and Kyrie and his family. And that's where it all went to hell in a handbasket. Is that true? Yes. What happened? Give us something. That I don't... That is something of urban legend. What is the urban legend? What is the urban legend? There's obviously... There was, I think, five people in the house. Tom, Rashawn McLeod, Dredrick Irving, whatever Kyrie's mom's name is, and Kyrie. So there's only five people that could really know what happened. And I've legitimately heard from like 10 different people, 10 different stories. Give me the best story. I, I, it's so like, I can't even remember them and they're so absurd. They can't be said. I, okay. Well, I'm going to say one because I'm that absurd. I, is this, have you heard this one that he, I don't even know how to say this, but he dropped a deuce in the bathroom and like didn't flush it. It's I, yeah, that's like one, like kind of version of reality. You've heard that one. Yeah, I mean, which is so absurd to me that I can't believe it. Like, I, I, that's I know, just but I, I have to say, I want unintended. to believe. I want to believe it because it's so funny. It's, <laughs> so it's hilarious. Funny. So I'm, you know, like, I don't want to dismiss it just to, because the sheer hilarity of it. But I would say, and I again, I don't know what happened. My guess is someone questioned Tom on something, and he didn't know how to handle it. And it escalated from there. He probably cried. It, he know, probably cried. Be it Kyrie's parents, be it Kyrie himself, being Rashawn McLeod and Tom. I, I don't know. But yes, they were the leader going into that in-home visit and coming out of the in-home visit. They were eliminated from the recruitment. <laughs> that is rare. That, that, that that's is a rare. poor in-home visit. That is a that's poor. a real <laughs> like Rabbi and I, like I know like the like nanosecond a kid leaves campus, like how'd the visit go? And it's always like, well, it's really hard to have a bad visit. Of course. Like, they're designed for people to have fun. And 99% of the time, you're going to have a good visit. This was the 1%. That's so good. It was bad. All right. So let's let's cut ahead because I don't want to focus this on Tom. I want to focus it a little bit more now on the end of Tom. I assume you thought, if somebody were to ask you your opinion at the time, an honest opinion— you probably would have sided with, yeah, th- this guy is not going to have sustained success here because of the relationships that have been damaged, especially in the state. It's time to change. I thought it was time to change simply because once you lose a fan base, no matter what, you never get it back. Right. And Tom had already lost the fan base, and the fan base had already proven that when he went, whatever, 15-3 and three in the Big Ten or whatever it was, and I know people, it was the most fortunate Big Ten schedule in the history of Big Ten schedules. I get it. But they also went to the Sweet 16 and the whole deal, and people still wanted him fired after that. You're never getting people back. That's true. Ever. Yeah. And it was so toxic because of that. Like, you know, Indiana could win nine out of ten games, and people would be like, "See, they lost a game. Let's fire this guy." Like, you you can't you cannot live in that way. Right. Yeah, it was brutal at the time. It was hard just being a fan reading about it. So they make the change. I do have to say this before we leave. Tom, did Tom in his nine years at Indiana, did he ever come to you, or do other coaches come to you and say, "Hey, we got a real need for a shooter with like a high motor." Who should we be looking at, Brian? Or we're looking at this kid. What don't I know about him? Do they do they come to you as a resource? Oh yeah. Uh, one funny story about that, actually involving at the time an Indiana assistant coach. 
Um, this is the final day of the July recruiting period. This is numerous years ago. And I won't say the kid's name because I simply don't want to embarrass him. But the Indiana assistant calls me. He goes, what do you think of – we'll just call his name George. What do you think of George? I'm like – he's like, do you think he can pl- play for us? And I say, coach, do you want me to tell you the truth or do you want me to tell you what you want to hear? And he said, well, I'd appreciate the truth. I said, there's no freaking chance he can play for you in the Big Ten. He goes, well, I appreciate your honesty. We're going to offer him tomorrow and he's going to commit. And I was just kind of like, well, what was the point of this conversation? Well, and, so, that, and that was the history of Grant Galon. Okay, let's just move on. <laughs> no, it wasn't, wasn't Grant. Okay, it could have uh, been, though. It could have been, yes. It could have been. But it would have been the same thing. Tim Priller. I'm just going to say names until you say yes. <laughs> it could have been Tim Priller. Uh, but Oh, yeah. Okay. No, actually, on. the Tim Priller story, this is a true story. So okay. I had seen Tim Priller in Dallas, Texas at the Great American Shootout. And because Tim Priller's a big seven-foot kind of goofy-looking white blonde guy, you kind of remember him. And I looked at my roster, and I had written down D2, as in I thought he was a D2 player. I submit – like I do a scouting service, and college coaches get my scouting service, and that just goes directly to them. And I include every D1 kid I see at an event on the scouting service. I didn't include Tim Priller on it. And this is, mind you, in the middle of July. I can't remember exactly when Tim committed. It might have been September, October. I, I don't remember. But, again, this kid stuck out to me because, as everyone can imagine, you don't see many Tim Prillers walking around a basketball gym. Right. And someone I know in Texas called me and said, hey, just so you know, Tim Priller just committed to Indiana. I took it so seriously that I started laughing. I hung up the phone and didn't even follow up to see if it was true or not. You thought for sure it was a joke. Yeah. Like there was, I was like, no, this isn't true. So then rat, I think it was Rabbi ends up tweeting that Tim Priller's committed to Indiana. And I said, wait a minute. My guy was telling me the truth. Like I seriously thought it was a joke. I, I by the way, I don't want to shit all over Tim Priller. The guy was offered a scholarship to play at a big time university. God bless him for taking it. God bless yeah, him he, for he sitting didn't there offer for, himself the scholarship. Right. And God bless him for staying there for four years and probably having the four best years of his entire life. Because as long as he did it right, he had a hell of a time. I exactly, can tell you that much. Exactly. I have no ill will. I love Tim. He did nothing wrong. That was not his fault. So yeah. no, no, and, there, that, don't take this that, as That's just a story. Too. Like, it's amazing. That stuff will happen. Where I like, honestly, I just thought it was so. Like, I was like, there's no way they they offered this kid a scholarship. I didn't even follow up to see if it was true. And this is a reliable coach in Texas telling me that. Phenomenal. All right. So Crean gets axed, and now the floodgates of. Indiana fandom go crazy. Who's going to be the next coach? We're we're talking about Billy Donovan looking at farmland in Bloomington. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's crazy town. First of all, where are the horse farms around Bloomington? Yeah, there are no horse farms. I mean, come on, it is just insanity. We're tracking tail numbers of flights. It's stupid. <laughs> Here's my question for you, somebody in the know and with relationships. You had to have thought, okay, here's the three guys or two guys that they're going to go for before you even knew who they were actually talking to. Who was on your short list? To me, the th- the three, there was only three logical names. Okay. Because, like, I knew Jay Wright wasn't leaving. I knew Billy Donovan wasn't leaving. I knew Tony Bennett wasn't leaving. Like, you, you just kind of know these things. So, to me, there were three logical names. Archie Miller, Chris Mack, and Chris Holtman. 
And it, it didn't take a brain surgeon to figure out those would be the three guys to target. Now, you if you want to shoot your shot at Brad Stevens just in case he does an interview and says, like, Indiana never called me and Indiana Nation freaks the hell out, you know, do do what you got to do. Right. But those were going to be the three guys that would at least listen. I don't know if all three would have taken it. I, I don't – to this day don't know. And I don't think if you ask them individually right now what they – if they know because – Chris Mack and Chris Holtman, you know, they're, they had different feelings before, but it's a lot easier to say, oh, I'd be really interested or a lot easier to say, no, I wouldn't be really interested when you don't have the option. Right. Now, when I, you have the option, that tends to change things. I, but I thought those three guys were the names and really it didn't need to be much brain surgery beyond that. All right. So I have a couple of questions on that specifically. I've heard from a couple different people that Holtman would never have taken the job. And these are fairly inside. I can people. tell you, it, it's probably you know February of whatever year it was that they fired Crean. Holtman and I are sitting at Mo and Johnny's in Broad Ripple, eating lunch, and we start talking about if Crean got fired. And Holt Holt tells me, you know, he goes, "Listen, I can never get that job anyway." He's like, you know, Archie and Mac are going to be ahead of me on the uh, the list, and then they'd have to like get turned down twenty times to get to a guy like me. Uh, and then he goes, but man, I'll tell you, even if they offered it to me and don't get me wrong, that's a great job. That's a great school. That's a fishbowl. I don't know if I can do it. Hmm. Interesting. And, but again, that's a lot easier to say when you're sitting at Mo and Johnny's and broad ripple, really happy with your job at Butler with no contract offer from Indiana. Right. But I would also say, Brian, that there is a certain kind of human being who that consideration never even occurs to. Do you know yes. what, like John Calipari doesn't care about the fishbowl that there's no such no, thing as a fishbowl to John Calipari. So the yeah, fact that, right. So the fact that Holtman is even bringing it up, it, it clearly is something he thinks about. And it does speak a little bit to just what kind of person he is. We're all wired differently. He clearly it's clearly something to think about. How close are you to Archie Miller? Uh, we have a good relationship. Uh, you know, I, I can't say we call each other all the time, but. You know, I'm welcome in Bloomington. Good. Uh, you know, were you close he, to him? He knows because he can call me and I'll answer the phone if he has to cuss me out. You know, everyone knows you can cuss me out. It's not really a big deal. Did Did your relationship with Archie start because of your relationship with Sean? Uh, possibly. I, I think I first met Archie. God, I think he was at Arizona State at the time, working for Herb Sendek. Um, I don't know if Sean was there or not. Maybe he heard my name through Sean. I don't know. But I, I, you know, I've known Archie for a long time. Right. So Archie gets the job. Your immediate reaction. If I was talking to you. Really good hire. Okay. Is it, this is, I was having this conversation with Ken Bikoff, uh, who works on Peaks. I was looking at coach salaries and I think Archie's in the low threes like 3.2 million something like that. Chris Holtman's at 7.1 million. That that's that's fraudulent. It's not the um, real number? N- what the way it has to work is and the only reason I know this is because my guy is actually the one who makes this stuff work. You have to load up the salary in year 1 to deal with, for tax reasons with the buyouts because Ohio State paid Chris Holtman's buyout. So they get, they had to give him a bunch of money, and like the way you have to do it is like you make the first year salary way out of whack, 
where the buyout is paid through the first year salary. Chris Holtman's salary is around $3.5 million. Got it. Okay. That makes a lot more sense. Like Chris Holtman was not making more money than Urban Meyer. Yeah. Okay, good. So I, um, that's, thank you for clearing that up. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's all tax related and buyout related. That's why I don't believe Archie's buyout at Dayton was very big. So Dayton or so Indiana didn't have to play that game. Right. But Holtman had just signed a contract the year before, which did include a pretty hefty buyout. I can't remember the exact number to be perfectly honest with you, but it, the way you had to make it work was how they did it. And it, it like saved him $2 million in taxes. However the hell it is that they do it. That's how you have to make sense. Okay. So here's the question that I would love to get your thought on because you said certain guys, I mean, I'm not even talking about Billy Donovan and, and Brad Stevens. Those are so crazy. They, they have better jobs than Indiana and it's not close, but guys like, and Jay Wright has a special connection to Villanova that, that is going to be hard for anyone to pry him out of there. Plus he's winning national championships. So why leave? Plus his wife would divorce him if he left Philadelphia. There you go. Okay. But Tony Bennett, is a guy who has no uh, familial allegiance to Virginia. It's a difficult place to recruit to. It's a phenomenal school. Academics are incredible. The prestige is great. He's living a very good life, and he's had tremendous success. So here's my question. Is Archie Miller and $3.2 million a year or around that, is he the best coach that Indiana could have gotten at that time, period? Or is he the best coach that Indiana could have gotten for the money they were willing to spend? I mean, I guess theoretically, if you wanted to throw $15 million at Tony Bennett, you know, and I mean like 15 a year, obviously I'm not, it wouldn't have had to go that high, but. Right. But if you wanted yeah, to throw you, you seven make, at him. You can move, you can move mountains at that point. Right. Like, Everyone's got a price. Right. But realistically, living in the world of normalcy, Archie Miller, Chris Mack, or Chris Holtman were the best, whichever one you prefer was the best coach Indiana could get. Would you put all three of those on the same level? Yeah. I mean, I've been around all three of them. I think they're all three tremendous coaches. Um, they're all very different people. Mm -hmm. um, like, if you were to ask me who's perfect for which job, yes, I would say Archie's better for the Ohio State job because Archie just wants to be a basketball coach. Right. This is, um, a, this is an interesting point that I've talked about that I'd love to talk more with you about. He like, go ahead. That, that was my question with him when he took the job is like, I was like, man, this dude's just a basketball coach. You know, everything that comes with speaking at Huber winery, like, you know, the 10 other things that you have to do, which, you know, Tom actually excelled at was the, all the ancillary crap. Um, the, the appearances, the promotions, the, the, everything like that, where that's where Tom was really good. That's where Archie's not very good. And right. he knows it, to be honest. Like, he, he knows what he is. But Archie just wants to be a ball coach. Well, guess what? The basketball coach at Ohio State doesn't have to do much of that crap. Right. And I thought Chris Mack was the better fit in Indiana because Chris is the bigger Twitter personality. He's going to reach out to the former players. You're going you're gonna, to, like, you're going to know Chris's kids. Like, Chris's kids have Twitter accounts. Right. And Chris, like, Chris is a guy who seems to... He works the press conference. He works yeah, the like, sideline interview. He he's a little bit more outgoing. It, he can just deal with that a little bit better. Um, so I thought he was a better fit in Indiana. I thought Archie would have been a better fit at Ohio State. And then I actually think Chris Holtman would be a really good fit at Louisville 
because he's kind of halfway between both of those guys. Interesting. Which is what the Louisville job is, where you got to do some of the ancillary stuff, but it's also basically about coaching ball. Can you be just a basketball coach at Indiana? We're going to find out. Yeah. Because I, I don't. If you win, you know, I'm not if from you win, Indiana. If like, you, right. I learn more about this, like, Indiana basketball culture every day. And I'll be honest, sometimes I continue to be amazed and baffled by it. But, like, we're going to find out. I, I don't know. I know this Archie will have, Archie will coach his team really well. He'll have good players. He might not have elite, elite, elite players, but he'll have good players and a good team once he gets, you know, a couple recruiting classes in and, and he can stack his guys. Is that enough? Is that going to be enough for Indiana fans? Especially if you don't hang another banner. Right. Look, that is the truth of the whole thing. If you win, if Archie's first two years, if the roster had been constructed in a way that it was just better suited to win right now, and he was 23 and 10 and, you know, winning a couple games in the NCAA tournament, nobody would be talking about any of the other stuff. But when you lose and when you underperform as many people thought they did this year and the losing streak, then people start to notice all the other stuff more. It gets put under the microscope. My my retort to that somewhat would be at the beginning, yes. In year five is just winning and winning at a high level, but not not a, again not a national title. Is that enough? Well, what do you mean by high level? You know, sw- second weekend of the tournaments, winning Big Ten conference ch- championships. Y- yeah, you you no Indiana will never win a Big Ten conference tournament because it's the most inexplicable thing ever that they are the worst Big Ten team in the history of basketball. I know. I, I, listen, in the tournament, it's just but painful. like you know, it's the curse the of Bobby Knight. Sixteens and Elite Eights, kind of doing what Sean has done at Arizona. Yeah, that'll work would, for would 10 years. Would that be enough for Indiana fans with Archie not doing all the public appearances and, you know, kind of just being a ball coach? It's For the first couple of years, I'm 100% sure the answer would be yes. Yeah. Year six or seven? I honestly, I don't know. Without a banner long term, I think it's probably not. And that's sad. It makes me sad. I, I was having this conversation with, with Bikeoff too, that Indiana has not been a nationally consistent, relevant team in 25 years. That's just the truth. I mean, we we had a couple years where we went to Sweet 16s with Crean. We never went to a Final Four. The last Final Four was 17 years ago. It it has been a long time since we've been nationally relevant. But the truth is, if you get the home run coach, the perfect fit at the perfect time, and you get a little bit of luck, a coach in college basketball turns everything around, right? I mean, look what Bennett did at Virginia. Look what Jay Wright did at Villanova. Look what Izzo did at Michigan State. Beeline at Michigan. The right coach fixes everything. We just don't know. We don't. It's too but, early to tell what we have yeah. yet. And, and that that's part of it, too. But let's take Tony Bennett. Now, obviously, he's had phenomenal regular season success. Phenomenal. He's gone past the Sweet 16 one time. Right. Would Indiana – and he's like Archie. He's not going to do – he's a ball coach. Would Indiana fans be accepting of that in year eight? No. Not not at Indiana, but I would argue what Bennett has done with talent that is nowhere near elite at Virginia, if you translate that to a school that is that has a more natural recruiting base, and I mean Indiana does recruit kids. There are mm-hmm. kids that come to Indiana because of its legacy, because of the position. The state is is rich with talent. I mean, Indiana through the different 
eras has gotten talent, at least in the early stages of a coach, and then it's up to the coach to see what they can do with it. Cream got Cody Zeller and Yogi Ferrell. You know, so he got talent, and then it dried up in the state. But I agree. I don't think Indiana would would allow... Indiana fans would not be happy with Tony Bennett's postseason success, or lack thereof. No way. But the question is, does a Tony Bennett at a school that has more resources than Virginia and more ability to attract elite talent, does that help him in the tournament more? You know, that's the interesting, and this is kind of Tony-specific, but his system kind of... I don't want to say it takes away talent because that's not true, but it mitigates a talent advantage or disadvantage. And do you think that that's Tony dealing with the realities of his situation or it's just Tony? I think that's just Tony. Got it. Okay, fair enough. All right, let's get back to Indiana. Archie, good hire, you think. And day one, Archie knows I got to focus back on the state and starts the relationship process with Romeo Langford, which has to be accelerated because of how quick it needs to happen. He has a year, basically. Mm-hmm. And starts the process with Trace Jackson Davis, specifically, and another guy named Keon Brooks. So I guess what I would love to do without keeping you on the phone for another hour is what went right with Romeo and Trace that didn't go right with Keon, or is it just kids decide different things? Uh, I I think it's a combination of a lot of things. I think the first thing for Indiana fans they have to realize, none of those three kids grew up an Indiana fan, or at least an Indiana fanatic. You know, Romeo will go on record as saying he was an Indiana fan. I actually think he followed Louisville more, and it sounds good for him to say he was an Indiana fan. Uh, Trace certainly wasn't, and Keon wasn't at all either. So there was no, like, built-in advantage with either of those three kids. Um... The built-in advantage was you, you're a high-level in-state program with great resources and, you know, close to home. Those were your built-in advantages, not the, you know, I grew up dreaming of wearing candy stripes. That just didn't exist with any of those three kids. Um, with Romeo, and, and I said this at the time, it, his dad always viewed this more as a business decision. Um Trace, very different. Keon was kind of halfway in between. But wait, when you say but, business decision, when you say business decision— no, And I'm not saying Indiana cheated. Like, right, I right. want to make that clear. It's no, you're just, talking about long-term, you're an long Indiana term, legend. Long-term and short-term. Right. By the in way— In terms of the way Tim Lankford approached a lot of this, it, it's part of the—and this isn't to say Romeo wasn't okay with it or complicit in it, but your average high school kid, even a really good one— has zero interest in sticking around for two and a half hours signing autographs after a game. Right. That was Tim Langford's brainchild. It was let Romeo's got this built in hype train around him. Let's, let's make him a legend. Let's do everything we can to make him a legend. And how do you follow up on that? The most logical thing is you go to Indiana because then the boosters are going to take care of you the rest of your life. The Indiana fans, at least theoretically, are going to view you as the the savior. You know, that was kind of the business decision. It was seen as it can help me long-term make money and short, short-term make money. It's interesting and, you bring that up because Jared Jeffries, who we talked to and who I've gotten to know a little bit, says exactly that's why he made the decision. For He made the decision for two reasons. Playing time. He thought that if he went to that stacked Duke team that had like seven NBA players on it, he was not sure he would be featured at all and it would hurt his NBA prospects. And number two was he knew that 
God forbid an injury happens, who knows what's going to happen with his NBA potential. He knew that he could come back to Indiana and get a job somewhere and a really good job and have a really good life. Like that yeah. was a, a business decision that Jared made. So with Romeo, that's what it was all about. And obviously Archie had to do the job of selling himself, selling the program, how Romeo fits in. But at the end of the day, business decision. But but hold on one second, because I do want to just go back to Crean for a second. Because all of what you just said about Tim Langford is true no matter who the coach of Indiana is. But everything we've heard is that there was no way Romeo was playing for Tom Crean. He wasn't. And I think a lot of that had to do with trust. Got it. And just the relationship. I mean, like, you're not just going to go somewhere because of the business decision. There has to be a baseline level of trust and understanding and relationship with the coach that Romeo and Tim Langford did not have with Cream that they had with Archie and his staff. I just got to ask, though, how is that possible? I mean, Romeo is a generational talent in your state. How is it that Tom did not build the right relationship there? I just don't even understand how you could screw that up. Again, I think it gets back to Tom is so intense and comes on so strong. And he started, and to his credit, he started to pick up on this as his tenure went on, that the longer he recruited a kid, the worse he did getting him. Hmm. Wow. That he was kind of trying to start off slow because, Tom, again, Tom has no downshift. Right. It's, I'm going to show you all the attention in the world and I'm going to come in. I'm going to make you feel like you're the greatest thing ever. And if you're deciding in six, eight months, that means I'm going to get you. If you're deciding in 18 months, that means I'm not going to get you. So I think he was kind of st- trying to delay the start of that process with Romeo. Got it. And it just rubbed the family and the high school coach and the AAU coach all the wrong way. Got it. Okay. Well, I don't want to derail the conversation. So now that was Romeo. Now Trace and Keon. So Trace, Trace, first of all, Trace wanted to be as close to home as possible. He's very close with his youngest, younger brother, Taven. You know, his mom and, and his stepdad live, you know, 40 minutes from campus, I believe it is. Uh, and he built an, uh, he was all about relationships, all about relationships with his family, his brother and the coaches. And he had no better relationship than he had with Tom Ostrom and, and Archie Miller. So for trace, it came down to that, you know, Michigan state, he liked, he thought he might fit in really well at Michigan state. And he had a good relationship with those guys, but it's further away. And he didn't have that in Indiana's where he had the best relationship. So can you, for a second on this relationship thing, Again, from the outside in, fans see an Archie Miller who is stoic, angry, does not smile much at all, does not joke around, does not work the press conferences at all, just answers questions. It is refreshing. He answers questions seemingly honestly. He, he doesn't give cliches like Tom did or other coaches do. He seems to answer fairly honestly, but he doesn't use the press conferences for the most part to motivate his team, to motivate the fan base. He doesn't care about that. What is Archie like behind the scenes with these 17-year-old kids that he's got to build relationships with? How would you describe him? I wouldn't call him dynamic. Like He's, he's not Bruce Pearl uh, who's or Shaka Smart who are tremendous, like unbelievable recruiters. They're just, they can be really dynamic personalities. Archie's never going to be that. But, you know, he, he'll show a little bit of personality. Uh, he's pretty good at, you know, he can crack a joke here and there. And, you know, he's he, he follows through. He comes off as genuine and honest. So, you know, the BS detector tends to not go off with That's him. That's good. And, and, and does and that, he have a sense key. of humor? Does he have a sense of humor? 
I mean, Millers are they're barely humans. <laughs> so he kind of has a sense of humor, but he, you know, he's not funny. It's I, I will tell you just as a quick side story, and we've brought this up on the podcast before, the only time in our two years now of being exposed to Archie that we have seen him genuinely happy is when we went to Southport High School to watch your event last year. Ward and I both went. Uh, we were visiting Bloomington for a game, the Louisville game, and then we went that night to see your tro- your showcase, which was amazing. And in the corner, we watch Archie Miller sit with John Calipari and Archie couldn't stop laughing for 20 minutes. He every First time of all, Cal Perry, like, I know everyone for even, especially today more than most days, on the peak site hates John Calipari. Like, you spend 10 minutes with him, even if you're trying to hate him, you're not going to be able to. Yeah, Brian, I've said this, like, many times already, and it kills me to say this. I hate him with all that I have, and I really like him. <laughs> like, like that's where I'm and at. I guarantee with you, I was, you know, lucky enough not to hear what they were talking about because quite honestly, I didn't want to. But, you know, I'm sure they were talking about Pittsburgh and the Steelers and talking about old stories about, you know, whatever white box pizza or whatever stupid Pittsburgh people talk about. Primanti brothers. Um, and that's probably why I was laughing, because it was all about Pittsburgh, if I had to guess. Yeah. Or they were making fun of their players. That's another thing coaches like to do. <laughs> like, can you imagine that this dumbass that I have did this? You know, that just like I'm sure parents, you know, I'm, I know my parents, you know, like my dumbass son did this. Oh, you know, yeah. it's all in love, but, you know, it's what coaches do. Sure. And it also seems like, again, going back to what Archie is, he seems genuinely, he seems like an authentic guy, like you said. Yeah. And he seems genuinely uncomfortable with much of the media stuff that the job involves. He doesn't seem to like it at all. He doesn't want to do the press conferences. He doesn't want to speak it, like do the big senior night speeches. Like he doesn't want to do that stuff. And when he's just in a corner of a high school gym with, well, we'll just say iPhone cameras on him, but no cameras on him to that degree, he can just cut loose and be himself with a guy like Calipari, who he respects and he's friendly with. And he can just let loose a little bit. Yeah. Whereas he doesn't... That's where he's able to talk like a human, right. or at least as much a human as basketball coaches are. Yes, yes. Um, All right, so let's go you back know, I'm to... I'm not sure. I guess Cal Perry actually technically did drive that day, which is rare, I'm sure. Well, he flew like, into We're, we're Indy, trying right? to guess, like, when's the last time Coach K drove a car? Did he actually drive a car? He didn't get somebody to drive him? Yeah, I did not. He had keys in his hand. Wow. He walked into that gym like... I mean, like George Clooney would walk into a red carpet. He well, was funny. In. I knew the game was going on. And, you know, they were still recruiting Isaiah Stewart at the time as well. Right. So I called one of the assistants at Kentucky. I said, hey, if your boss is coming, please let me know so I can have someone looking out. Like, you know, someone ready when he walks in so he doesn't get crushed. And they're like, okay. All of a sudden I get a tap on my shoulder and it's Cal's right behind me. He's like, Cal's here. And I text the assistant. I'm like... <laughs> The hell were you doing? I told you to let me know. You did the like, opposite. Izzo had let me know. Archie had let me know. Like, hey, I'm going to be there. So I'm like telling them, okay, find me. I'll get you a seat. You know, that's you're not going to get accosted at during the game, whatever. And you know, and then Cal, his assistant, was like, my bad, bro. <laughs> that's great. I do have to ask you about that night. So we see Archie and Cal, who clearly have a long history. They're from the same area. They've known each other for a long time, very close, having a good time. I will tell you who, who at least I observed not having a good time talking to John Calipari, Tom Izzo. They did not seem to exchange more than maybe two words to each other. Uh, and I Honestly, I don't think they have any issue with each other. Okay, I, I really don't. 
Um, I just think it was like, if you remember, Izzo had Dane Fife with him. Yep. And uh, DJ Stevens. So he had his kind of own assistants with him. You know, like most head coaches, he was probably trying to figure out what Jimmy was in anyway. Um, <laughs> you know, like I've literally had head coaches of kids that they committed like, Brian, which one's the kid that's committed to us? God. He's that one, coach. That's... Oh, okay, good, good. He's a good player. Like, you idiot. What is wrong with you? Right. Um, so, you know, he probably, he just kind of had his own people there. And I'm Sherman Dillard was there. He's a Big Ten guy from Iowa. So I think he was just kind of chopping it up with those guys. I don't think it was anything, you know, beyond your standard just kind of, you know, he saw Cal, Cal saw him. He was already in conversation with someone else, you know, head coach exchange of glances to let you know we respect each other's position as the the boss and go on with life got it all right so now let's talk about keon so where yeah, you know keon, where, where and like i don't want to belabor the point and and look i also want to say this to any hoosier fan listening this vitriol that's going on like threatening like threatening his family or wishing like him to get injured and stuff it's just insanity it's stupidity it's it's the downside of social media giving morons a voice that that they would have never had 15 years ago. So I don't even want to get into that stuff. That said, where did it go wrong with Indiana and Keon? Did it ever go wrong? And is it just a matter of Kentucky's just better at this? Um, that's tough. I go wrong to me is is it was never right. Um, like I, I took a, took a lot of, I don't want to say a lot of, he took some heat, like when someone else pointed out, like the Indiana coaches or whoever are optimistic that Keon's going to commit. That was never the case because Keon and his family never gave Indiana reason to believe he was coming to Indiana. Now they didn't necessarily give him reason to believe that he wasn't, but it's not like Archie Miller's waking up saying, you know what? <laughs> I feel really good about where we stand with this kid. But the, um, but there were times in the recruitment where I do believe, and I'm not trying to call you out on anything, but I think you even said at times you wouldn't if you want if you were to trade Indiana's position with another team, you wouldn't that they were in yeah. the pole position. So and I I think that's maybe when I say that I don't pontificate it properly, um, because what I would mean by that is like I don't know where he's going. But I do know they're looking at this, this, and this, and Indiana fits that as well as anybody. Like, he wants to be close to home. Right. All right, that's a check for Indiana. It's a slightly, and I mean slightly bigger check mark for Michigan State, but still a check for Indiana. You know, he liked Archie Miller. Okay, check for Indiana. You know, Trace Jackson Davis is his friend. He, you know, really respects him. Check for Indiana. You know, so be it. You know, the, Indiana just had a lot of check marks. Yes. Yeah, so. But he never really gave them reason to think like, hey, you know, he's totally sold. And I think the problem was now, granted, like some of the social media like stuff throughout the recruiting process, definitely the IU fan base became a problem more than a than a help. That, that is 100. Um, you, you have no doubt about that. No that, doubt. No that doubt. The, the jack bags in the Indiana community who were just crucifying current players and saying horrible things that was noticed by the Brooks family and Keon and it negatively impacted them. Yeah. It was like, well, you know, why would you say this stuff? And I know on the board, people are gonna be like, well, Indiana fans aren't the only ones. If, if it was going that bad for Kentucky fans, it would be the same way. And you know what? That's right. But if you're not seeing it, what does it matter? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so that was a part. And then like, 
I just don't know if he ever felt, you know, that, you know, I'm sure we've all had when we, you know, like you're getting back to like, why did I go to Ohio State? Like when I walked on that campus for my campus visit, you know, you just kind of get a feeling like, okay, this is the place for me. I don't know if he ever had that gut feeling when he was at Indiana. That is really interesting. Do you think, does it have anything to do with Kentucky's got the players only apartments? The, I mean, is it, is it anything tangible or because that it does dovetail onto another question that I do have, which is just, there's been a lot of conversation about institutional things at Indiana that hold it back that other schools don't have. And I want to get into that, but but is this just a case of a kid just didn't love Indiana and there was nothing I, that I Archie so. could I, do? And when I say didn't, when you say didn't love Indiana, I want to make it clear he liked Indiana. Yeah, well, like liked and love Indiana are different though. But you you don't marry he just the person didn't you like. Love Indiana, right? And you don't marry he the person did. you like. And when it came down to it, I think he just felt a little bit more comfortable with a different situation. And the reality is, you can only pick one place. And part of the reason this took as long as it did is because him and his family had good options, not because they didn't want to go anywhere. It's because they didn't know where they didn't want to go. Hmm. They, they knew they wanted to go to Indiana, Michigan State, North Carolina, Kentucky. They knew all those were really good options. The problem was finding where they didn't want to go within those options. And it can come down to little things. And I think ultimately John Calipari was able – to either sell them on or give the impression or however we want to state it of his care for his players is beyond anything else. Right. Well, he's done and a good job marketing. They that. got that feeling from him and they're a close family and they felt like, Hey, this is the guy that has Keon's best interest at heart above anybody else. Fair enough. What did North Carolina do to screw themselves out of this? Uh, well, the first thing they did was be located in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Okay, but that that was always the case. That and was always going to be a problem. And then I just think some some interactions with the parents when that became known that it was a problem. And a lot of the times I believe it's unintentional. Just kind of like as a coach where you're trying to like, okay, you, kn- you know you've got this problem and it's not, it's not a problem you can change. Like Chapel Hill's not getting closer to Fort Wayne anytime soon. Right. So you can't change it as a coach. So I think you try to go into spin mode and not even like lie. I'm not saying lie or try, but you try to like explain why that isn't a big deal. And I think that became, it went wrong. Yeah. You can't tell somebody something's not a big deal if they think it's a big deal. And, and the reality is, is no matter what, because distance was a breaking factor, he was never going to go there. But North Carolina excuse me, and their attempt to get him to go there kind of put the final nail in their own coffin. So I want to go back to something you brought up earlier about how none of these three that we just talked about, Romeo, Tracer, Keon, grew up big Indiana fanatics. The truth is there's fewer of those these days than there ever have been. And every once in a while, there's a weird case, like I think you've even talked about, like Anthony Leal from Bloomington South, whose parents work at Indiana. They live in Bloomington. That's a different case, and he's clearly not a top 30 talent. My question for you is, are the days of Indiana mattering in that way over to top kids? Do they care? Um, This is where it gets really tricky 
maybe the way it once was, I would say, yeah, that's completely over. And that's a function of in the 80s, if you're growing up, basically the only team you're seeing on TV if you live in Indiana is Indiana and whoever they're playing. Sure. You might see a little bit of Purdue or whatever, Notre Dame, what have you. But now, for instance, I'm sitting in Indianapolis right now watching Houston and Memphis play. Right. Um, You can see everybody in the country. There's 20 games on a night. That that major advantage that Indiana had, it, it's forever gone. Of now, kid, I don't want to say you're forced to to grow up rooting for Indiana, but if you had no one else to watch, you're either going to grow up loving them or hating them because you're always seeing them and only them. And odds are you're going to grow up loving them. That those days are gone. They're they're never coming back. Like technology has changed that. Right. Then also there are just fundamental differences on where good basketball players come from now. And that fundamental difference on, and people can try to hint what I'm coming at, coming from that fundamental difference on what areas good players come from. It doesn't help Indiana when you're located in Bloomington. Meaning, meaning the recruiting base or getting kids that would actually want to go to Bloomington for school that are dying to go to Bloomington. You know, it used to be, you know, you got Mike Lewis growing up. I forget which Southern Indiana town, Damon Bailey, what, you know, even Jared Jeffries growing up in Bloomington. Now those guys are more typically in city, city or suburban city, you know, like Fishers, Indiana. I'm getting, I count that as Indianapolis. Right now it's more Indianapolis based. It's more Fort Wayne based. It's more Cincinnati based. So, and when you get into metro areas and this goes for every metro area, it tends to be more of a melting pot than where you're exposed to so much more than growing up in Bedford, where it's like, well, I just want to play in Indiana. Right. Like, it's just a different mindset. It's a, the demographics are totally different. You, it, it's just totally different than it was 30, 40 years ago versus what it is now. But there are those cities, I mean, East Lansing is no great Mecca. Durham is no great Mecca. I mean, Lexington is a real city. It's it's a bigger city than Bloomington, I believe. Um, what what is the difference with those? I mean, is doesn't it just come down to the coach? Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, here, I guess here's sure. my question. Here's my question for you. All things being equal, John Calipari wakes up tomorrow morning and says, "I'm done with Kentucky. I'm going to go." And Bloomington is like, "Come on down." We're going to hire John Calipari. And I believe me, I know all the reasons why that would never happen. I'm, I'm talking about a dream world. But do you have any doubt in your mind that Indiana competes nationally for a Final Four if John Calipari is the head coach? No. And same with Tom Izzo or, or Mike Krzyzewski? But they're, they're, I would say is there's a reason those guys are Hall of Famers. Right. That, that's kind of my point. Number of them. Exactly. There's a handful of those guys. Yeah. And then there's— Like, Bill Self's going to win no matter where he's coaching. Right. Um, you know, Mike Krzyzewski, he's only coached one place, but, and I know people, he coached at army in 1934. I get it. (laughs) But like, realistically, like Mike Krzyzewski, like he's only, no matter where he's going to coach, he's going to win. Right. Roy Williams, wherever he's going to coach, he's going to win. You get beyond that. (laughs) I mean, maybe Izzo, like, let's be honest. John Beeline hasn't like won at a high level everywhere he's been. No, he competed at West Virginia. They were no yeah. like national power, but he competed. Yeah, they had one one kind of run, which, by the way, is pretty consistent with what West Virginia's been over the course of forty years. Yeah, 
I mean, look, it looks like Huggins wins wherever he goes. I mean, not yeah. at not at national title level, but but clearly the guy makes a nationally relevant program wherever he yeah. goes. So yeah, I mean, you you get the right guy in, and for whatever reason, Mike Davis, you know, everyone could come up with whatever reason it was, he wasn't the right guy. Right. And then Kelvin Sampson probably was the right guy. It just all went to hell in a handbasket real quickly. Yeah, I mean, yeah. by the way, people have revisionist history about Indiana, about you know how far away we are from from being the team I think everybody wants us to be. Take away phone calls and what Kelvin was doing behind the scenes. That team was going to win a ton. I mean, the recruiting class that he had coming in, if I'm not mistaken, was a top 10 class that had like Devin Ebanks and the kid that went to Xavier, right? Uh, to Holloway. Right. I mean, he had studs coming in. Yeah. So And they were going to get Kevin Jones, who went to West Virginia. Right. Yeah. So he had, you can get the players, but clearly we all know what happened there. All right. So yeah. you, we've talked a little bit about just kind of the changing dynamics of where kids are and the game has changed and technology and television has changed who are the cool places to be are there's been a lot of talk on the pigs board rab john's got into a lot of this talking about the indiana president that there are some are there some institutional things that indiana is doing that are holding the program back do you yeah have i any would say when archie got there they were in the stone ages Give, can you and give now me like, they've gotten to the Bob Knight years. Can you give me two examples of what? Because I don't, uh, un, I don't think a lot of us really understand what that means. We look at Indiana and we're like, my God, we're on TV all the time. We built Cook Hall. We everybody loves Assembly Hall. Like, what do you mean we were in the Stone Ages? Give us a couple examples. Um, our, one of Archie Miller's first calls um, was to Scott Dolson when they got the job, and they're trying to figure out scheduling. Okay. And one of the biggest things with scheduling is buy games because you got to play them, especially at the time Indiana wanted 20 home dates. Now they've relaxed on that a little bit, but you have to play all these buy games. Explain, right, what's explain our budget for a buy game. Yeah, will you explain, Brian, to everybody what a buy game is? You know, just a one for none. You call a low major, mid major program, you give them a check. They show up and you lose, and that team loses. And I would imagine that, you have to pay more for better schools to come in because yes. you're thinking that's going to bolster your resume and those schools yeah. get nothing from it except If you want a money. top, you know, like a, like, let's say a ball state, you're going to have to pay more than Norfolk state Got by it. a lot. Okay. Um, so the, they were trying to figure out like, what's okay. What's the buy game budget? Cause you know, they're, they're coming into this blind and they're coming from a school like Dayton where you get whatever you want, whatever. And it was like, yeah, we usually pay $75,000, $80,000 a buy game. When Archie and Bill Comar got done laughing, they said, you know, we never paid less than one hundred five at Dayton. Wow. And I know some fans are going to say, well, that's because we're Indiana. No, those schools that need that check, they don't give a crap. Yeah, what's Kentucky paying for a buy game? Yeah, they're they're paying $100 plus, okay. you know, um, for, for a good buy game. That you know, and a lot of the time, heck, it, it's easier. It, it would have been easier for Indiana because they weren't as good. Right. And some of those buy teams, they want to go to a place where they think they can win the game. Well, well, come to Bloomington. We can offer you that. Know, like, let's just call it what it was. Right. So, like, the fact that they were paying 20, 30 percent less per buy games, like, just showed a fundamental lack of understanding. And whether that was due to the administration, the former regime being the coaches. I don't know. I can't speak to that, Okay, but that that's one example. Like 
I was stunned when I heard how little Indiana was paying for buy games. Have they changed Just it? Just stunned. Have they changed it? They've changed it. So and are, also they've relaxed on 20 home dates. They've given more scheduling flexibility to Archie in that regard. Got um, it. Okay. There, there's a, they're, they're, as I said, they're starting to catch up. Um, is there another one you, know, you can give us? Players lounge. And I know everyone's saying, Oh, these spoiled players. Like wh- whether you think it is or not that they need one, every other school in the big 10 for the most part did. Right. Um, their compliance works in ways that are mysterious. Like the way I say, there's two types of compliance departments. One who works with you to follow the rules and one who works against you to try to catch you cheating. Indiana tries to catch Indiana cheating. Is that because I don't know why that is. You don't think it's because of leftover Kelvin Sampson drama? No, I I think it's, we want to prove that we're, we want to prove how compliant we are because we're Indiana. So it's, it's Bob Knight stuff. I mean, it's leftover Bob Knight stuff. And you, you'll still hear stuff around Indiana. Well, Bob Knight didn't need this. Right. Well, you listen to Dan Dakich. That's what he says yeah. a lot of the time. Another thing is, is like, and some of these are goofy Big Ten rules, but some of it's like Indiana rules about like when you can leave the night before a game. Like at, at a school like a Dayton or a Xavier or Ohio State or wherever, like if you want to leave at noon, because you want to get your kids into New York, you know, let's say you're playing Rutgers on a on a Thursday. You know, at those schools, you're going to leave at noon on Wednesday. You're going to get there. You're going to okay. Let's land in New York. Let's get or Newark probably. Let's get out to where we need to get to. Get a good dinner. Get film session in. Get a good night's sleep. Whatever. At Indiana, it turns into this whole process of, well, we don't like to leave before 4 o'clock so all the kids can go to class and da-da-da-da. So next thing you know, you're landing in Newark at rush hour, and everything just turns into a pain in the ass that doesn't need to be there because you didn't want, you know, Armand Bassett missing, you know, Agriculture 101. And is that something, that just kind of pain-in-the-butt stuff, that trickles down to recruits when they are in a in a you know, a, a battle trying to make a decision. Do they hear that? I don't, I don't think necessarily that stuff trickles down to the recruits, but what it does is it makes your coaching staff have to deal with crap. They shouldn't have to deal with. Got it. And I know people are going to say that just proves how academic we are. Shut up people. You all skip classes too. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's true. Well, it's also funny. I, when we had Jared Jeffries on, I said to him, don't give me this crap that you had to study at Indiana as hard as I did. And he laughed and he said, look, man, if I could take one more African-American studies class, I would have done it. He's like, <laughs> he took them all. So, uh, yeah, there, there is a holier-than-thou uh, strand that, that lives in Indiana fans that it, it's, a, it's a tricky thing because part of what does make the Indiana fan base unique is that they think they are different. And part of what makes them arrogant and uh, difficult right now is that we think we're different. <laughs> it's kind of a double-edged sword. This one thing I've said, and I said it to a few people this year, Indiana's never lost a kid because they don't have the names on the back of their uniforms. Not one time has that ever come up. But it's the mindset that there are legitimately people who think that during a basketball game, a kid is going to think, well— I'm going to play selfish because I have my name on the back of the uniform as opposed to just playing for the name on the front of the uniform. That doesn't go through a human being's mind when he's playing a game of basketball. Hmm. That's great. Like it just doesn't. And the fact that that is persuasive 
within not only the fan base, but the university. They've made it what university policy that no schools will have names on the or that no team, no sport can have a kid's name on the back of his uniform. Right. The hell is the purpose of that? Because it does support this idea that Indiana is different. Indiana fans like to think that we are different. And I would be lying if I said I didn't buy into some of that over the years. As I've gotten more kind of astute about how to compete and, and talking to reading stuff from you and Rab Johns, you start to realize what you're sacrificing by holding on to these kind of um, arbitrary ideals. But uh, that it is what it is. So like – that's just where I come from sometimes. It's like people are holding on to things that Bob Knight said in the 1980s. Well, the 1980s, that, that was a long-ass time ago. Like the world has evolved, and when you don't evolve, you go extinct. Right. And I think Indiana was really slow to evolve from the end of night. And people also seem to forget that from what – 1993 through whatever year night was fired was it 01 2000 yeah uh those weren't exactly once calvert cheney graduated iu wasn't exactly killing it under night either no i was there i was there 95 to 99 we we won one ncaa tournament game i believe i mean we, we we did not win a big 10 championship and we weren't really close to winning a big 10 championship no, it's been 25 years since cheney graduated that that whole team and henderson and bailey left town that Indiana has been the nationally consistent, relevant team. 25 years. I mean, that every kid that Indiana is recruiting, every kid for the last several years and from now until who knows when, has no connection or knowledge, firsthand knowledge of Indiana being a top program. That is So depressing. for me, it, to me, it seems counter, just like it defies logic in my head not being an Indiana person. To think that, hey, we need to still hold on to those ideas, ideals from 25 years ago because that's what worked then. Right. If something's not working, I want to change it. Sure. All right. So I'm taking up way too much of your time. But before I let you go, we do have to ask you, let's talk about the future for Indiana. There's been a lot of talk about a lot of kids. There's been a lot of talk that 2019 isn't done. There's kids like the Lester Kionis, who seems like, I think you've reported that UMass is a giant uh, leader in the clubhouse. No, that's the big, Trey Mitchell. Oh, Trey Mitchell, I'm sorry. Lester Kionis was an LSU lean, but that might be gone because of the Will Wade situation. Yeah. Um, But again, Indiana seems like a long shot there. Harlan Beverly, who seems to have a guard, who seems to have some issues with play tempo of play in the Big Ten, which I totally agree with. It's ugly basketball. But he he has shown some interest. But all three of these kids seem like long shots for Indiana. What's your take? Give us give us kind of a, a nutshell on what is 2019 outlook remaining for Indiana. What's interesting to me is uh, 2019. You know, I'm, I'm sure they'll add someone else via transfer, grad transfer, whatever it may be. What's interesting for me is I was lower on this year's team than I think most were coming in because of just I thought there was a lot of turnover from best players. And it was still you had you were going to be counting on young guys to play point guard and what have you. I think I'm going to be higher on next year's team than most people are because a lot of the intangibles that this team didn't have for as good as Jawan Morgan is. First of all, he wanted to be in the NBA. There's no way around it. He wanted to be in the NBA. If he didn't want to be in the NBA, he wouldn't have held out as long as humanly possible for at least one NBA team to say, hey, we're moderately interested in you. And he never heard that. 
So he didn't really want to come back, but he he knew smart enough to know he had to. Then you have a freshman in Romeo Langford who, let's be honest, if you're you're coming to school for one year, you're never going to be fully invested two feet in. It's just impossible because you've never been ingrained into the culture. Those are going to be your two best players. Next year, the team, your best players are going to be Rob Finnessy, who's got a year, who's who's you know kind of an Indiana guy. Whether it's Justin Smith and Devontae Green who have overcome things this year. All those intangibles that I didn't feel like this team was going to have, I feel like next year's team is going to have. Now, it might only mean the same level of team in 2019-2020 that you saw in 2018-2019. But what it does is it's a building block. It sets the stage for the program really to take that next step once they can get another recruiting class in and maybe a grad transfer, maybe a a traditional transfer. So I think next year is kind of when you see the last two years have been about getting this thing, which was completely bamboozled in terms of the APR, in terms of the number of players on scholarship, in terms of the dead weight of scholarship on at the end of the roster. It was about getting all that cleaned up, bringing in, creating your identity, creating your culture. And I think you're going to start to see it from this point forward go in an upward direction. Now, that's not as fast as Indiana fans would like, but if Indiana fans want it done a certain way, which is not one-and-done kids, which is not cutting corners on rules, this is the way you have to do it. You you were way ahead of the curve on this one with the with this year's team, but one of the things that you were critical of, and I don't mean that pejoratively, you were, you were a little critical of how much focus it seemed like the staff was putting on recruiting forwards and bigs and yes. a lack of focus on recruiting guards. Yes. We only I have, think they fundamentally erred. All right. Now, we only have one guard coming in next year, and I love this kid, Armand Franklin. We've talked to him on the podcast. I love his mom. I love him. He seems like a guy who's going to work his ass off. He's not a point guard. He's not a guy who's going to come in and score 15 points a game in his freshman year, and maybe never. I mean, who knows what kind of player he's going to be. He's going to be a guy who works his ass off. But it's it's year three of Archie, and we don't have guards coming in. So are you still critical of the approach, or has Archie started? And, And I will say this. He just missed on DJ Carton. I mean, he went to Ohio State, so he did try to bring in an elite guard. But is that still a problem that you see hampering Indiana in the coming years? Not as much because they finally have a guy who's actually a point guard who can run the team. Oh, in fantasy, sure. Yeah. So, but but yeah, they still need to. This the, the game's getting smaller, not bigger. The way you create mismatches is by shooting threes and using quickness and spreading the court and just making things difficult on a defense. So you need more guards now than you ever needed, and. Um, I, I think Indiana's still short a guard or two. Do you think that? Maybe, sorry, go ahead. Maybe they can. Maybe they can fix that with a grad transfer. Maybe they can fix that with a traditional transfer. Maybe you know a coach gets fired and they find another guard. You know, there's a, there's a lot of ways to fix that problem. Maybe maybe Harlan Beverly comes around and and decides you know what the Big Ten's okay. Uh, but it, I think that's how close the rate the margin is to really getting this on an upward trajectory. And I, I think Archie and his staff have realized they they probably need a little bit more in that regard. And I, I think you're going to see them focus that way. You, and part of the other issue is a lot of the best players in the state, you know, the two best players in the state this year, Keon and Trace, they're forward, a forward and a center. Right. So you're not going to not recruit those guys. And then Isaiah Stewart's going to prep school a couple hours up the road. 
you're not going to not recruit them. Right. So I think part of it was a function of circumstance and part of it was a miscalculation on the staff's part. And this, this is where people get like, you can have a lot of respect for a coach. I have a lot of respect for Archie. It doesn't mean I'm paid to agree with everything he does. Right. He's not an infallible coach. Um, and just like, I'm not infallible. Like I'm going to screw up evaluations. People I guarantee it. Like I didn't think Desmond Bain was a high major player. He might end up playing in the NBA one day. You know, I got it wrong. What do you want me to say? You right. got it wrong. You're damn right. I did. Um, so, but I, I think people just understand when you're critical, that doesn't mean you don't think someone's good at their job. It just means you think they screwed up one part of their job. So you wrote something on, uh, I believe it was either in one of your weekly um, reports on Indiana or on the message boards, where you caused a little bit of a stir because you said that you fully expect Indiana to play in the transfer market. And you were a little bit more specific while also being vague by saying that there were some players that Indiana fans will know fairly well that could come up in that transfer world. Is that an accurate uh, representation yeah. of what and you said? Every, literally, like the best players Indiana's recruited for the last four years all came up on the message board. And I'm like, well, why stop there? Why not just go to Zion Williamson? Right. <laughs> I guess the question is, are you talking, and I'm, I'm not asking you to name names because I know you won't do that. Are you talking uh, in the grad transfer world or in the traditional transfer world? Both. Both. It'll be guys from the state, guys from the area, guys Indiana's recruited. Like some of those guys are going to end up transferring. Now, I don't know which names and which people specifically. I have a good idea. But when it comes to transfers, a kid can fully intend to transfer and not transfer and then fully intend not to transfer and end up transferring. You never until they until they put their name in the portal. You never quite know. And coach, but there will be some names that, you know, Indiana's familiar with. And what, that doesn't mean those kids are dying to go to Indiana. It just means I fully expect, I know the coaches feel that they have to continue to add to this roster and transfers. And if you're in the get old, stay old business that college coaches are in, transfers is a really good way to do that. How likely is it? Well, I guess now it's without getting Keon, we have Jawan Fitzner, Jawan and Fitzner leaving and Romeo. Mm -hmm. So that's three scholarships leaving. We have two players committed. So there is one open slot. Do you see them filling that open slot and adding another, which would mean that somebody on the current team is transferring? I think it is very naive to think when you have guys at the end of the bench who aren't playing that all of them are going to stay. Now, maybe it happens, but the, the numbers tell us in college basketball, if you don't play, you don't stay. So I think it'd be very naive to think all those guys would stay. I thought it was a little— And I don't even have specific intel saying they're not going to stay. Right. I just have common sense and history. Let me ask you this. Uh, coaching staff. Do you see any coaching staff changes? I personally, in terms of—you never know with whether it's a, a support staff member like a Brian Walsh or a GA or something like that. I don't know. You know, if those guys get a call to be a, a on-the-road assistant coach, I'm no, sure I'm they would leave. I'm talking about the main assistants. Yeah, I, I don't anticipate movement, but I, I don't know for sure. Um, when was the last time you talked to Archie, just had a conversation about the year? Uh, let's see here. I was at the Illinois game, so I saw him at the Illinois game. How Obviously, that was a good game for Indiana. Um, how frustrated is he? Did he anticipate it being this hard? Did he see it coming? Is he? What, what would, how would you characterize his frustration level? Um, 
you know, it's tough to speak for someone else in sure. terms of what they anticipated. I would say at no point did he anticipate losing 12 out of 13. Right. I don't think he ever saw that coming. So I think that's frustrating. But is he like ready to give up and throw it all away? No. You know what I mean? Like right. that's just – but I mean like any – coaches get frustrated. It's a – you're dealing with males 18 to 22 and their parents. Can you think of a more frustrating thing in the world than that? No. no. Well, maybe dealing with pigs fans who go nuts at uh, <laughs> I think maybe Well, dealing with Rab Johns. Yeah. <laughs> That's where I'm frustrated. But. Sure. Uh let me ask you this a hard question. He's been here 2 years. There's like you talked about there was a big mess to clean up. There was an APR situation that he had to had to manage which meant keeping players that I'm sure in a perfect situation he would not have kept. How would you grade him 0 to 10, 10 being the best, on how he's done in his first two years? Hmm. I would go like six and a half, seven range, which for me would be above average. Right. I don't think he's been great. I don't think he's been perfect. I don't think he's been terrible either. Um, Did some things, you know, has had, had a really good first class, got the player, got Romeo Langford, you know, Got another McDonald's All-American, Trace Jackson Davis. Team made strides this year. They definitely played better. They executed better. But was it good enough? No, it wasn't. He lost all the 13 freaking games, including the Northwestern. Mm-hmm. And Nebraska and Rutgers. Yeah. Like, there were some bad losses. And I know they're not quad three or four losses. I get all that. But they're not losses that if you're an Indiana team that's trying to, with getting the class that he got, you should be getting. The, the tough thing for me this year, I'm curious your take, injuries were clearly like the defining story for the first half of the season. How much do you look at the 12 of 13 losses and just kind of the team falling apart to the injuries? I think that's some of it, but like at the end of the day, like no one's going to feel sorry for anybody. Right. Like injuries happen in sports. You, As a team, as a coaching staff, as players, you got to be mentally tough enough to overcome it. Uh, I'm going to hit you just with a couple quick things. Every time I see a message on the Indiana boards, specifically Peegs, about Jerome Hunter, you are very quick to come in with a, guys, pump the brakes. We have no idea if this kid is going to be able to overcome this condition to play, not not a life-threatening thing here, yeah. but but to overcome it to the degree where you can play high-level Division One basketball. Um. Can you just talk about that a little bit? Have you heard anything recently that gives you more optimism, less optimism? Um, The only thing recently that would make me feel a little bit better if I'm an Indiana person is the fact that he's allowed to take contact. He's allowed to do contact stuff because the only his his condition isn't like a, you know, you could re-injure it type situation. So the only reason you wouldn't be taking contact is if you get cut, that means you're bleeding. And if you're bleeding or you're bruising, it means there's some sort of something that would keep that from not stopping, which I would assume would be like a blood thinner of some kind. Again, I'm not a damn doctor, but you know, if we're dealing with like a leg condition and blood and I would assume you're on a blood thinner, if you're allowed to take contact, that would tell me you're off blood thinners, which I would think is good. Now, how good is it? I'm not a doctor. I, I I got I barely got a bachelor's degree for God's sakes. But so, you, but at least that's some kind of positive sign. But does that mean his condition is solved? Is it, no. And I don't know what all goes into that. I know Archie has said he's had 
I don't know what exactly Archie's term was. I don't know if he said surgery or operations or if that's even a difference. I, right. You know, other people can speak to that. But I'm assuming you don't have two of those, one of which is at the Cleveland Clinic, or at least you went to the Cleveland Clinic, if it's just a minor situation. So not asking you to be a doctor, because obviously, combined, the two of us probably shouldn't be telling people to take Tylenol. But <laughs> you, you do talk to the staff. Is the staff, Where is the staff's confidence level on having Jerome play next year? I would say optimistic. I would say they're optimistic or hopeful. But again, since they're, it's something totally out of their control and totally out of their comfort zone, they just don't know. Right. And when, as a staff, when you just don't know, it, it, and it's even as simple, and Jerome doesn't have tendonitis, so please don't think I'm saying he's trying to recover from tendonitis. Right. But sometimes with tendonitis, like, you just never know when it's going to go away. So the staff will be like, you know, I don't know. I I just haven't seen the kid do anything. He's got tendonitis in his knee. He literally can't take four steps without being in pain. And then the next day it could be all perfectly fine. So you, you just never know. So it, it's kind of one of those situations. It's, it, they would feel a lot more comfortable if it was a torn ACL because it's, hey, at six months he's going to be doing this. At eight months he's going to be doing this. At 12 months he's going to be doing this. Barring an insane setback. But th- there's nothing they can point to. There's no sign they can point to, like no table benchmark. So especially if you're not a doctor and you don't really understand what the hell is going on, you're going to be apprehensive. But I think they're optimistic and hopeful that that Jerome will be available to them at some point, either this offseason or next season. But, you know, until you know that as a coach, you're not going to be feeling good about it. Right. And I, I have to say, when you think about Archie's first class, which was a good, very good class with Rob, Romeo, you know, Jerome, the the shame of it is that in year two, in year one of that, he missed Jerome. In year two of that, Romeo is gone. And we don't know what Jerome will be. What we do know is Jerome does not have a year of experience playing basketball. Yes. So even if he is back, he's a freshman by all intents and purposes. And he's a real freshman because... You know, he couldn't compete in practice most of the year. Right. He didn't even have the race Thompson where he had a year of getting his body right and, and yeah. competing. Right. It's going to be growing pain. So he, he he basically lost a year. Right. Which isn't the case with most redshirt situations. So as a coach, that's going to make you feel less comfortable again. Sure. What is the ceiling for Trace Jackson Davis? NBA, good NBA player. Wow. Now he's got to learn to use his right hand a little bit. He's got to get more skilled. He's going to have to expand his range, but he's big. He's athletic. He's mobile. He's tough. He plays hard. And especially in the new age NBA, which is going smaller at six, eight, six, nine, whatever he is, you know, that you can play center at that size. So I, I think he could be a good NBA player. Now that's the ceiling. What's reality. I think it's going to take some time. Yeah. What kind of player are we getting in Armand? I think a, great role player. And when I say role player, I don't mean like eighth guy on the bench. Maybe, maybe not eighth, like eighth man in the rotation. I think maybe early on that's what he is, but he could be like your third best player on a good team. We'll take that. And he's the type of kid. He checks so many boxes in terms of intangibles that he's one who's likely to reach his ceiling versus some kids, like maybe even like a Troy Williams where you just never knew if he would ever put it together. Armand's the type of kid where you're like, that kid's going to put it to, he's going to get every ounce out of his natural ability. When we talked to him on the podcast, I was blown away with just how composed and just And the other, he's been around college athletics his whole life. 
Right. He knows what it takes. You don't actually ever really know till you go through it, but you have a really good idea of what it takes to experience, to, to be a college athlete, what, what sacrifices you have to make, how hard you have to work, things like that. You also can tell a lot from the parents, and talking to his mom, she's incredible. I mean, you can just tell she graduated in Michigan. Great, great lady. Yeah, she just she gets it. She is, she's fun. She's smart. She she gets what this is. She takes it seriously. She expects her son to take it seriously. So I, I think we're getting a good one there too. All right, before I let you go, give me two players. Not necessarily from the 19 class, because we, we've kind of covered that. But 20 and 21, two players that you think are difference makers that Indiana has a real shot at. A real shot at. Uh, 2021 point guard Christian Lander from Evansville. Okay. That that would be one who I really would point to in, in that class that I think he's going to be a McDonald's All-American. I think Indiana's going to have a tremendous, tremendous shot with him. Obviously, it's still early, but Indiana's done everything that they can do in the right way. Um, and then let's see here. 2020 is kind of tough right now. Is this Caleb? I, Love? I, I like Caleb Love, who's kind of a combo guard out of St. Louis. I think Indiana, you know, they've got some connections there and the kids interested. So I, I'll be interested in. And I think, again, you can never have too many good guards. And I think he can be a difference maker as well. Well, I, I'm personally curious about this because he's from St. Louis, my hometown. The, Indiana has not done well with St. Louis kids. What what are the connections there that would change that? They, they just know the high school program, the AAU coaches. They they just know those guys. Is he still at CBC, Christian Brothers, Caleb? Did he come back to play there? Do you know? Yeah, he's at CBC, okay. and uh, he plays for the St. Louis Eagles, or Brad Beal Elite. Got it. By the way, I don't want to brag here. When I played for Ledoux High School, senior year, we played CBC. Larry Hughes was a freshman. I drew three charges on Larry Hughes. I'm just putting that out there. You are the worst per- You are the person I hate on a basketball. Yeah, yeah, court. yeah. I'm hunting charges, Brian. Hunting them. Like you should be banned from basketball. Well, that happened even if I didn't want it to. <laughs> 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 that, that happened. I got banned from basketball by sheer talent, just playing its cruel game on me. Um, but you know, okay. we so, all got limitations in life. So Caleb Love, uh, Christian, Lander. Christian Lander. What about Ethan Morton? Um, I don't know that he's a difference maker. I think he's a guy Indiana has a really good shot with, but and I think he can be a really good piece to the puzzle, but I'm not necessarily sure he's a difference maker. Got it. Okay, and then kind of the ultimate question, is Archie our guy? I genuinely think the answer to that question is yes. I think he's a really talented X and O guy. I think he's a good enough recruiter. I think he's a very organized. He has a good staff. I really think if Indiana fans are logical, rational – and they give him a chance to get this program going and don't – there's a saying that Indiana people like to eat their own. If Indiana folks don't eat their own, I genuinely think Archie Miller will get this program going in a really positive direction. The only part of what you just said that bothers me is when you said if Indiana fans are logical and rational because they are not. We are not. <laughs> that scares the hell out of me. Uh, hey, Brian, thanks so much for taking all this time, man. I did not mean to take up almost two hours of your time, but – it is so fascinating to talk to somebody whose work we all read on like a daily basis and we crave every time you post something or, or your articles breaking down games or your weekly notebook on, on the program. 
We can't tell you how much we appreciate it. Just speaking personally, I love your writing. I love your sense of humor, too, on the boards. I love you giving the business back to Indiana fans that need the business given to them. And uh, <laughs> it's really fascinating to talk to you. And I'd love to to do it again when we've got more to talk about. Sounds good. Thanks so much, Brian. Thank you. Well, I did not think that that podcast would be close to two hours. I apologize for all of you that are still just painstakingly sticking with me. I appreciate you. I love you all. I apologize. This is why I do it with Ward, because we keep each other on our game. I'm sure I just went on a lot of different tangents. Probably didn't make much sense on many of them, but a lot of good stuff there. Brian has great insight. It's good to talk to somebody out of the Indiana University bubble. It's good to hear from somebody who has a sober and realistic approach to what Indiana basketball is. I like the fact that he is a fan of Archie. Uh, I like that he's realistic about the job that Archie has done for the first two years. Not great. Not terrible. Just kind of somewhere in the middle. A little bit above average, I think, is what he said. Um but he believes the future is bright. He gave us some really good insight on players to watch in the future. And, of course, we had to just relive the uh, pain of the announcement of Keon Brooks, which probably will be the last time I talk about it here because I am 100% focused on the players who want to be Indiana Hoosiers. And while I wish no ill will personally on Keon, I will root like hell against him every single game. And that's fair game. And that's what Indiana fans should be doing. The vitriol that exists online needs to go away. It did hurt us in this recruitment. Brian didn't say it was the reason that he didn't come. It certainly didn't help our cause. That is just the reality of recruiting kids in a social media world. So I hope uh, we all take note of that. Please remember to follow us on Twitter at Hoosier Hysterics. No vowels and hysterics. You can email us at the Hoosier Hysterics at gmail.com. We've got a lot of great interviews coming up. We're going to release a Tom Coverdale interview coming up very soon in the next few days. I'm very excited to release that one. And a lot of a lot of big former players coming up. Thanks, as always, for sticking with us. I promise you Ward will be back for the next one. And for everyone thereafter, please, please, because I cannot do this alone. It's terrible without Ward. Let's not tell him I said that. Chances are he won't listen to this whole thing, so he won't hear me compliment him. And we will give you more of what you are accustomed to. Thanks again for watching. Watching? Not watching. Listening. See, I don't even know what's going on without Ward.